looking forward to going over this this challenging, I'm not going to say it's a difficult passage, it's a, it's a challenging text and what it has to say, praying that the Lord would use that in my life and your life as he has in mine. Let me go ahead and <clears throat> open up again in a word of prayer, if you would. Father, I, I pray this morning that my name would be forgotten, but yours would be lifted up, that I would not try to convince with words, but that your word would be made clear, that your name would be lifted up, and that we would be challenged today by the words of Scripture, the words given to these, to this crowd, that we would not lay aside this text and, and ignore it, but that we would seek, Lord, how it is designed to change our lives. So I just pray for this time together this morning around your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Luke 14, we read verses 25 through verse 33 in our first portion here this morning. We just finished reading, if you saw in chapter 14, he had just finished completing giving the parable of the Great Supper. In this parable of the Great Supper, we see that the banquet is prepared in verse 17, he tells us everything is ready to receive, and as you know, the, the parable, one is invited, and they go out, and the servant goes out and invites people to come to the banquet, and people have excuses for not coming. Some have the affairs of the world to care for, they have their affairs to take care of, others have family to t- take care of, and they go out in the byways and compel them to come, so... We see the, this preparation even for the text that we're about ready to see because we see some of the same objections and excuses that we find in Luke 14. We see some of the context given here. And verses 25 through 33 is what many consider a, a very difficult passage to read. Not because it has some deep theological truth, but because as you read these words, these words seem, seem harsh. They seem very, very demanding. They seem perhaps even a little bit unreasonable. Three times in this passage, in verse 26, verse 27, and verse 33, he's going he's gonna to repeat three times, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 26, you can't be my disciple if you don't hate your own father, mother, wife, and kids, and yourself. Verse 27 You can't be my disciple unless you bear your own cross. And then finally in verse 33, you cannot be my disciple unless you renounce all that you have. I like Steve Lawson's take on this verse, he said, on this passage, he said, these words are not hard to understand, but they're hard to swallow. And I think most of us, because of the way it's written, and intentionally so, it's written in a way to confront us with a certain truth and reality. And yes, as you read them, it's like, wow, you're... We're taken aback by the seemingly harshness of these words. And though there's a lot of controversy surrounding Christ's ministry, it was not so much because he was misunderstood as because what he had to say was hard to listen to and hard to receive. G. Campbell Morgan says this about this passage as well. He says, I think I've never read these verses without being filled with a certain sense of fear without being inclined to say, are those indeed the terms? And then I wonder, am I a disciple? 
So as we read these verses, I, I, I want to, to bring clarity to these verses, but I want to do so in a way that doesn't take away the intended impact of this text as well. So this morning what we're going to see is <clears throat> there's three marks of an indisputable marks of a disciple, but in the midst of that we also see a parabolic admonition in the middle of these verses. So there's really three marks of a disciple, and then in the middle of that there's a parable given, an illustration given of the one who builds and the one that goes to war. So point three will bring that out as well. But before we do that, and we'll come back to these points in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to go to the context, and we're going to spend a few minutes on the context here because the, the text is written in such a way here. We're not in a parable. We're given a, a narrative where in verse 25... He gives a specific description and he gives details. And every time in the narrative he gives details, I want to understand why he's given these details. In verse 25, he says, A great multitude or great crowd went with him, and then he turns to the crowd. Now, we're talking about a time right now where he's probably around six months away from the crucifixion. So perhaps he's coming at a time and say, Okay, the crowds are not new. We're going to see this in just a moment, give a little bit of context about the crowds that follow him. So having a crowd is not new, but maybe he's approaching this six-month window where he sees himself going to, 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 to the cross and he's going to stop and look back at the crowd and say, now wait a minute, hold on, sit down and listen. To really contemplate, do you know what you're getting yourself into? So three things I want to see first. First we see the, the great crowds described in verse 20, uh, 25. We know that in Scripture, Christ is going to interact with the sick, with the, those that need to be healed. He's going to interact with religious leaders. But in Matthew 4, we have the first mention of a crowd that begins to follow him. Matthew 4, he's going to climb on the mount um, and teach on the the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount is what was presented in chapter 5. And so that's the first mention of the crowds that begin to to follow him. And it might seem idyllic in the beginning to have large crowds follow you, surrounding Jesus as he teaches. And I would imagine perhaps even the disciples, the twelve, are following him thinking, wow, this is pretty nice. You know, and the, the more faithful ones, as, as the crowds follow Jesus, think, well, this is, well, we know, we're, we're, there's popularity. His, his message is gaining traction. And crowds are this, this constant buzz in the background of Jesus' public ministry. But what's interesting to see is that the few times the crowd drives a narrative in Scripture, we find Jesus trying to escape them. He either goes on the mountain, he either gets on the ship and goes across the sea, he slips away. Something that I find interesting for us and a good reminder as he gives us this first description of the great crowds that follows that clearly Christ is not interested in growing crowds. He's interested in making disciples. Now, listen, I get it. We, we, we like to be in, you know, when we're in a crowd, we have a sense of strength, a sense of, of um, we're empowered by a crowd, we know that Christ was, Matthew 9 said he was moved with compassion. So we know he was moved with compassion for the crowd. Why? Because they're, they're unbelieving. They're lost. It is it's hard not to see this. And most commentators, when they read this passage, they, they, they cannot help themselves but to go to our, our modern context of things that would that'd be totally contrary to what we would expect. You know, in, in modern day evangelicalism, the, the idea of having crowds is a good thing. You're trying to draw the crowd. As a matter of fact, much of the philosophy is how can we draw a bigger crowd? How can we please the crowd? How can we draw the crowd? How can we make the crowd comfortable? It's interesting to see that Christ's reaction to the crowd is totally opposite of what we would be 
intuitively desirous of doing. Because with this crowd, he looks back and he doesn't say, wow, this is wonderful. Such great crowd following me. He looks at the crowd and says, stop. Stop. In the pillarbotic illustration, a little bit later in these verses, he'll, he'll give the illustration of the one who builds and then the one who goes to war. And both times he'll say, sit. Sit down and pause and consider and count the cost. Most people who give a title to this text, to these verses, would say, they would use, it, they would use either it's the cost, the counting the cost of discipleship or making disciples of the marks of discipleship. And he tells them, he pauses, and I want us to, to pause here as well because every effort to present the gospel that doesn't require counting the cost, every, every effort to present the gospel that, that, that shapes it down or that, that draws it down to, the, to a simple prayer without any due consideration or a gospel which requires no sacrifice, or a gospel that doesn't produce this kind of disciple, this kind of gospel does not produce disciples. Churches might be tempted to attract new members by stressing how little membership requires. Just repeat after me, and you can walk in those doors. Christ makes that a little more difficult and a little more demanding. But the point of, of, these, of, the, of the teaching here that Luke is going to bring out is not so much to focus on, on, on the cost, but in contrast to how much that it's worth, what we gain from walking with Christ and following him. So there's, there's a great crowd, and, and in this crowd, I'm sure you saw some, and they, there were some, we see this in other parts of Scripture. There were those that were curious, that were there just following to see, hey, what's going on? You've seen those. It's kind of like when a big fight breaks out at school. And you know you have 100 people surrounding it just to see what's going on. Some were there for, for selfish gain. We see that as well. They were there because they wanted to be healed. They wanted a healer. They didn't want a savior. Some were there as religious leaders. They were there to find fault. Let me listen to see what he knows. I could, I could, I could find fault in him. Some were fickle. They were there, but at the first signs of trouble, I could expect them to run. I wouldn't be surprised, and you could expect that some of those who six months later are going to be the ones singing Hosanna at the entrance of the triumphal entry are going to be the same ones crying, crucify him three, four days later. How fickle the crowd can be. And though we don't have a specific description of what they were feeling, we know by his teaching and by his response the type of crowd that was following, right? We know by the lessons teaching here that some of He's telling the crowd, some of you love other relationships over me. I mean, your love for me is not on par with what it should be. You love other things, other people more than me. Some of you are unwilling to, to suffer all for me. Some of you are unwilling to give it all for me. He knows the type of crowd that is following. He describes them here. There are a number of them uncommitted, unconverted. You know, this explains as well why, why the Lord... Many times when he heals somebody, what does he tell them? Don't tell anybody. And we're like, why not? Well, because he doesn't want to gather a larger crowd that's not seeking a savior, but just seeking to be healed. He's not trying to feed the crowd more. So he tells them, hey, walk away. Don't, don't tell anybody. Because he didn't want just to amass another crowd of unrepentant and uncommitted. One lesson I, I draw from this is simply this, don't confuse familiarity with Jesus, even proximity with Jesus, as knowing Jesus. 
and being a disciple of Christ. Counterfeits walk close to Christ. In the previous chapter, you could even glance there in chapter 13, verse 26, he says, You will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, and I'll tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me. He's saying, you know, you, we, were, we were with you, we drank with you, we were in your presence, you taught in our streets. He says, I don't, I don't know you, depart from me. So we see the great crowd, and in the midst of that great crowd, there's going to be an individual calling. I guess what I would encourage you today is easy in, in American Christianity, where we're part of larger congregations, to get lost in the crowd. To be following a crowd. To be close in presence in proximity of Jesus, but not to know him. And not to walk as a disciple is called to walk. The second thing I see simply here is the great calling. In the second part, so he says this in verse 25, he describes the great multitudes with him. And then he says, if anyone comes to me, I'm going to pause there and then we'll get to his, instru- his three instructions here, the marks of a disciple. If anyone comes to me, we transition from a crowd to a, a personal call. Each individual responding in faith, believing that by grace salvation is offered to every repentant sinner. We go from the largeness of a crowd to the narrowness of a door. Now Luke had already been given a picture of this, this idea of, of coming to him. He would already been teaching. As a matter of fact, really what we see here taught here is taught in other parts of Luke. He brings a certain strength. I'm not going to say harshness. He, he, he speaks in strong terms here. But some of the truth has already been presented. They should be familiar with it, but he's, he's coming back on it in a, in a strong way. If anyone comes to me, we see this in Luke 6, Luke 6, verse 47. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them is like a builder. Now, if you remember the passage of Luke chapter 6, he goes on to say that the person who comes to Christ and hears my words and does is a doer of the word, he will build and his the foundation on which he builds will stand the test of time. Interesting, the same analogy here, the same picture he's going to be given here in a few verses to come, right? A little bit later on in Luke chapter 9, he says that if anyone could come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So he's, he's taught this, but he's coming at a point here where he's going to break away from the crowds, and he's going to discourage the crowd, in essence, to examine themselves and to either commit or walk away. Doesn't that baffle you that people reject Christ? I would just say this, as a, on, on a personal level, as someone who's walked with the Lord, I've been blessed to, to come to know the Lord at a young age and to, to serve Him full time. I mean, I can't express, I could spend all morning here, what a blessing it is to, to, to walk with him. And I would take a young person, and I, especially when a young person is confronted with sin decisions, and to ask themselves, is it worth sacrificing the sin? And all I could say is, walking with Christ, there's no greater joy than walking with Christ. And accepting to, to, to follow him to, and to come to him. Steve Lawson writes it out this way, and I, I, he, he does it in such a beautiful way as a commentary on, on this passage here, he makes these statements. He goes, Pursuing him fulfills your greatest purpose to magnify his glory. Trusting him meets your greatest need, forgiveness of sin. Loving him gives you the greatest pleasure, the joy of knowing him. 
Being taught by him gives you the greatest wisdom, wisdom that he alone possesses. Abiding in him imparts the greatest power, all sufficient grace for daily living. Walking with him provides the greatest fellowship, the delight of communing with him. Traveling with him on this one path leads to the greatest destination beyond this life, one that will bring us into his eternal presence. The great pursuit is that of being a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. Pursuing Christ is like no other pursuit in life. It's a spiritual journey that will shape how you live your daily life. It will shape and impact your desires, your choices, your actions. Pursuing Christ as a, as a disciple means leaving everything behind, what you want, leaving our own walk to walk in his ways. It means walking as he walked. It means loving those he loved. It means obeying as he obeyed his father. Pursuing Christ as a disciple will, will cost you. It will cost you your way of life. It will cost you time. It will cost you treasure. But whatever the cost, it is well worth it. And in the end, you will gain Christ. But as we go on with the text, we see these three indisputable marks of a disciple. The first two will be, I'll spend more time on the first two, so when you do the math, don't think I'm going to spend the exact time on every point in, in 1230. <clears throat> They're indisputable marks because they cannot be questioned. You, you must have these. One thing that's interesting as you read this text, and here's what I don't want to take away from the text. When you read it, the text, there's no gray area in this text. If I were to write this text, I would want to say something along the lines, well, if you were you know, a, a good disciple or a true disciple or a spiritual disciple or a sincere disciple, he doesn't quantify that. He simply says, to be a disciple, here's three things that you must have. The crowd is listening. No descriptive is given here. That so often is convenient for us. But that's a dedicated disciple. That's a committed disciple. I mean, I'm a disciple. I'm just not a dedicated one. I'm just not a committed one. I'm just a Sunday morning one. I'm not the, the zealot he is, but I'm a disciple. He doesn't make those distinctions. He says here's three indisputable marks with no nuance brought here. And that's probably what makes this passage difficult for us because there's no nuance that we like to navigate in those gray areas that he doesn't provide here for us. The first thing he shows is that we, have a, he has, we are to have an unparalleled love for Christ in verse 26. Unparalleled meaning there's no equal, there's no comparison. And of course, when we read the text and we read the word that you're told to hate, our first instinct is to, is to push back on that word because we're always taught to love. So the first time you say, that as you read it naturally, you say, well, we're called to hate, we have a natural reaction to that. And that's the intended purpose of writing it in this way. Now, some would say it's a hyperbole, which I don't really feel comfortable saying it's a hyperbole because a hyperbole is what? is an exaggeration for the point of making a point, right? But if you, if you say it's a hyperbole, so you're saying, it'd be easy to say, well, that's an exaggeration. So let me just put that off to the side. It's just an exaggeration. In reality, what it is is more of a Hebrew idiom or Hebrew expression, a literary genre to, to make a point. But it, I wouldn't want to say it's an exaggeration And kind of put that aside, well, he's exaggerating here. No, there's a point that he's making that we are to take. 
It's designed, the writing and the way it's written is designed to, to carry a, a comparative force. And we'll see that through Scripture, and I bring some examples of that. I bring some passages, and I'll walk through these briefly for us. He's colliding two thoughts here, the idea of loving and the idea of hating, for the purpose of demonstrating the unparalleled love for one, loving Christ, over the other, loving all other relationships. There's no parallel, there's no comparison between loving Christ and loving family, loving children, loving even grandchildren. It's a very effective form of writing. It is effective because even we read it and we're impacted by it and we're caught off guard a little bit by it if we're not familiar with it. But he pits these two things not to try to bring the, the object of hate towards one, but to elevate the object of love towards the other. The contrast between these two is to express a great preference for one over the other. We'll see that systematically through Scripture. I wrote some references here, and I'm going to walk through them for us. One, we see that in Romans 9, verse 13, where he says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. This expression is used to describe an overwhelming preference towards Jacob as the one to be the recipient of God's promise. This expression is used in Genesis 29 as well. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. We read in Genesis 29, it says, We read now, the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, is the way it's translated in ESB. The Lord saw that Leah was hated, is the way it's translated in the ESV. Simply put, Jacob had two wives, but loved Rachel more than Leah. We see this in Deuteronomy 28 as well. Old Testament instruction, he says, If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other is unloved. If you have two wives, you'll end up loving one more than the other. First, let me tell you, if you've got two wives, you've got other problems as well. And not just that one. I'll read that. I'm thinking, really? Yeah, there's... Same truth is taught in Matthew 6. Now, we're going, to, we're going to go to Matthew 10, though. We will go there. But me, Matthew 6, he says what? No man can serve two masters. He'll either hate one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to one, and he'll despise the other. Now, the idea of despising is not appreciating something at its rightful value. So you despise something by not appreciating it at its just value. So you're either going to love one, hate the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and then despise the other, but you can't serve both God and money. Now look at Matthew 10. So if you turn there and, and keep your passage here, because we're not going to turn tons, right? But you go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Uh, the reason why I want to go to that passage is because it parallels very well with what Luke is writing here in Luke 14. Now here he uses the expression that we would expect to see by saying if he loves one more than the other. Matthew writes it this way, whoever, and so in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not what? Is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke 14, 26. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Luke 14, 27. And whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So again, we see this, this same parallel text in Matthew chapter 10 that we see in Luke chapter 14, and a, a different wording. But ultimately, the disciple of Jesus is one that loves Christ above all other relationships. I wonder if you were to even examine your own life can you say that to be true? 
Is your passion for Christ demonstrated in a greater way than any other passion you have? What I find interesting is a little bit later on, Luke is going to be talking about, again, about the, this loving parents and loving family, loving the Lord. But he describes it in a way that what he's saying here is that my, my commitment for Jesus, my commitment to him, my devotion to him should be such that my love for anything else pales in comparison. No one should be able to look at my life and say, well, yeah, he loves Christ, but he also loves all these other things. No, my, my love for Christ is so undeniably strong and evident in my life that everything else just pales in comparison. Let me tell you, you're going to have to, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, recommit to that. Because there are many things in this world that vie for your love. Many other relationships and affections that are there that claim your attention and claim your affection. And yes, it's not uncommon in other countries that have perhaps religious systems that will experience alienation if you trust Christ. There will be some, some nations around the world that if, if a family member claims Christ, then they're automatically alienated from the rest of the family. Perhaps in Orthodox Jews, Muslims, Hindu, even devoted Catholics. And I've witnessed that and seen that perhaps you have as well. Perhaps you're experiencing some of that even in your own family. We have someone that's part of a religious sect and, the, and you're ostracized because you're not part of that and because you claim Christ. Your love for Jesus will be put to the test. Now, a little bit later on in Luke 21, verse 16, Luke foretells a day where he says in Luke 21, 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. We are experiencing a little more of that in this country where culturally and socially Christianity is becoming a problem for many because we're seen as those who are, we're not peacemakers. We're too black and white. We're, 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 we're too convictional. We're, we're too rigid. We're too strict. We're too, all these things that bother society that wants to answer to its own passions and, and wants to pursue its own affections. And Christians more and more are going to be put on the spot. Christians more and more are going to be challenged in their affections. You're going to be challenged in your affections at work. You're going to be challenging your affections with your colleagues. What Christ is saying, there's no, other, there's no way of diluting what he's saying here. He says there's no, other, there's no shared affection. Your affection for me has to be unparalleled. And that has to be the mark of a disciple. One commentator, Schlater, says this way. He says, the very perfection of love that Jesus requires explodes the bounds of all natural associations. A love for Christ just shatters every other relationship. He goes from there to an eagerness to bear the cross. Now, you know, you're looking at these words and what are the appropriate words to use, and the word eagerness has a certain joyful anticipation. And at first I thought, well, is it really appropriate to, to give a joyous anticipation as it pertains to the cross? But yet we see in the Hebrew, do we not, that Christ had that as well. I'm going to come to that verse in just one moment. But first of all, the, the image of the cross, he says, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I mean, it's not like he's a good disciple or a bad disciple or just a nominal disciple. He's, he's not a disciple. 
So equally shocking to the idea of hating your parents is the idea of the agony and the shame associated with carrying a cross. I mean, the first statement was shocking, right? You hate your parents, hate your... And he elevates our love and passion and affection for Christ in, in doing so, but equally shocking to say and to describe the idea of carrying his own cross. Now, you notice now we're, we're, we've walked away from this crowd mentality and an individual call of carrying your own cross. The one to be crucified carried, had to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. It was part of the shame is part of the public display as Christ did, right? He carried the cross to the place of crucifixion. It's part of the, the shaming. It's part of the public humiliation. We see this pictured well in Hebrews chapter 2, second part in verse 2. He says, Look into Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and, what, and despising the shame. We are familiar with the picture of the cross, and in Christianity today, that's an image that is well taught, because Paul picks it back up, of course, many times. Galatians 2, probably being one of the most familiar ones and most known ones. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. They knew the cross to be a symbol of shame, a symbol of being an outcast, a symbol of great suffering. But for the believer, it was a sign of giving up your life for that of another. The Roman cross was so dreaded public execution. It was so despicable that no Roman citizen was allowed to be tortured and put to death through a crucifixion. I do find it interesting. I'm going to take a, maybe a, a historical context or a historical detour. Because what's always interesting to me as you're reading the text is what did they hear? What did this understand this to be? So we're, we're talking about now during the life public ministry of Christ... For round numbers, we're going to say we're somewhere around 30 A.D., 30 after Christ. They were very familiar with the idea of crucifixion even in that day. Around the year 6 A.D., so just a few years after the birth of Christ, hundreds in Galilee were crucified for rebellion under Judas of Galilee, or Judas the Galilean. The reason I mention that is because Peter is going to see him at the council. We're going to see him mentioned in Acts chapter 5. Judas proclaimed that God alone was king and ruler, and his laws were supreme. He was a zealot, and many were taken from their home and were crucified. So when they hear the word carrying your cross, it was a very vivid picture of what that meant. I find it interesting that later on in, in Acts 5, when Peter finds himself before the council, he has his famous words, right, in Acts 5.29. He says, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's wonderful. As he speaks to the council, Gamaliel stops him and says, hold on one second. He's in the council. He stands up. What does he say? Peter, I need you to leave. He tells him to leave the room for a minute. And he, he addresses the council. He says this. He reminds them of the fate of Judas of Galilee. In Acts 5.37, he says, He rose up, it says, Judas of Galilee, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So here we have, even just a few years later, 
have Peter standing up and saying, hey, better obey God and be true to him. And Gamaliel standing up and saying, well, wait a minute. Remind of the council. One, if we oppose him, remember what happened to Judas of Galilee. Josephus talks about his two sons being crucified. Judas, two, Judas of Galilee, two sons were crucified for their rebellion. So when he's given this picture of, of rebellion, when he's given this picture of, rather, of carrying the cross, it was a very clear picture, a vivid imagination of what it meant to, to do so and be crucified. It wasn't something just a picture, a metaphor like it is for us, perhaps. But the suffering that he describes here, this carrying the cross, is pictured for us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? Even the point of death, even what? Even death on a cross. G. Campbell Morgan gets a little bit exasperated at the commentators who look at this text because he says the idea is not suffering for suffering's sake. It's not just, oh, I'm, you know, I've got a cold, I'm suffering for Jesus. I twisted my ankle, I'm suffering for Jesus. That's, that's the extent of our, our bearing our cross. So excuse his, 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 language, his, his harsh language here. G. Campbell Morgan says this. He says, a good deal of unintelligent nonsense is talked about the cross as in relation to the experience of the believer. Meaning the mere fact of suffering physical pain, some loss of material things, a personal suffering as bearing our cross. He says we never touch the realm of the cross until we are suffering vicariously, which means on behalf of another. Suffering for another or to benefit or advantage another. We are, we are called as disciples to do two things. One is to show an unparalleled, unmatched love for my Savior that's, that, oh, that casts a shadow on all other affections, human affections that I might have. I've shared in our Family Life Sunday School class that as you're raising your children and your children are young and you're, you're involved in all the daily tasks of educating your child and teaching them and Bible memorization and, and this or that and clubs and activity and sports and, and all these things that keep you running. I said, let me give you a glimpse of where you want to be 30 years from now. You want your children to love God, love his word, and love the people of God. Love God, love his word, and love the people of God. So I, I, I've been tremendously blessed to have a family who knows the Lord and, and trust him. But that comes first and foremost by having an unparalleled and unmatched love for my Savior. And love in your children and love in your family in truth and in love. And then a willingness to, to pour it all out. Paul's going to describe that in his own ministry, that he pours his life out as a, as a living sacrifice. There are many references to it that attest to that. We get so easily... 
I would not say frustrated, but we can get so easily put off and discouraged and, and lose our sense of commitment so, so quickly, can we not? By the first trial that comes our way. He takes a pause here in verse 28 and verse 32 to give this illustration and this parable of these two pictures that are given. Now, when you're reading this, that there's a primary point. Some commentators will go in and describe who's the enemy and what is peace and all that. But, but, but primarily, when you're given a parabolic teaching here in the midst of this, is to give a, one primary point. And the primary point is given in the ability to sit down and count the cost. Verses 28 through verse 33. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? That's the one Thing both of these examples have, both illustrations have, is the, the <clears throat> admonition, rather, to sit down. Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, verse 29, he is not able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him? who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation <clears throat> and asks for terms of peace. So here he has this, this crowd that is following him, and the first illustration he gives is you need, to, you need to stop and sit down, take time to consider, to contemplate. That's why I mentioned earlier that when we share the gospel with people, we should share the cost of the gospel. That's the beauty of why, because he is worthy because he is worthy. And not present a truncated gospel that doesn't have any personal sacrifice tied to it, but understanding the grace that's been given to us and the response to that. He tells them to sit down. And then he tells them to count the cost, to consider the cost, to count. Count the cost of building. Why? So you can make sure that you finish. Count the cost of waging war so that you can be victorious. He is still speaking to this crowd, and in doing so, he's describing how coming to Christ is a free act of grace, but it will cost you everything. See, Lawson wrote a book on this passage, and that's the title of his book. It will cost you everything. Those who attempt to come without renouncing earthly affection, without dying to self, without being crucified with Christ, will not be those who endure to the end. Many that followed, many of the crowd, many of the multitudes would never endure to the end because they were not, of, obviously they were not disciples of Christ manifested in their affections. He has one more verse in verse 33. Then he gives one more illustration in verse 34. I'll just mention that in, in the closing, in our closing, in just a minute. This third mark of a disciple is an abdication of life's possessions. An abdication of life's possessions. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not what, renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It reinforces what has been taught elsewhere that the, in, in Luke 12, he had already announced and already taught. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life. Does not consist of what? Of the abundance of his possessions. He just taught that in Luke 
12, verse 15 earlier. The point being that he's given here is simply this. The point is, it's not the idea of giving up possessions, but giving up the right to these possessions. They're renouncing the right to these possessions. Renouncing physical and emotional rights to what you have. And acknowledging that these things belong to him. We see a great testimony of that in Acts chapter 4, when the first believers come together. It said that they had all things in common. Why? Because they recognize these things are not ours, but they belong to him. So one of the, the evidences of being a believer, one of the undeniable marks, is recognizing that what I have does not belong to me. It is not mine. It is his to use for his purposes and for his glory. When you read through these verses, there's really not, not much to add. Sometimes I read a passage and I look at the passage and I'm thinking, boy, I wish I could just pause here, just read it and pause. But I figured it would be awkward just to read it and pause for ten minutes. So I didn't do that this morning. But you could just take these verses and sit there and read them and, and, and contemplate, Lord, and meditate on what it means for you as a disciple, as you contemplate, as you count the cost. A couple of concluding thoughts here. A few things I thought were helpful. One person wrote that it doesn't take a particularly special person to be a disciple. It just takes all there is of him. It has nothing to do with what you have to offer him. It has to do with salvation that he's offering you. It has nothing to do with, with how special you are. And I know a lot of times we like to accentuate how, how wonderful and special we are to God, but it all has to do with me giving all there is of me to give. The gift of grace, merit, and return that we give are all to him. And as a, as a new, as, as a disciple, my, my identity, when you think about these three areas that mark a disciple, these three areas totally shape your identity. It totally shapes who you are. Our new identity found in Christ is found in loving Christ over all other relationships, is found in offering my life as a living sacrifice, is found in giving up ownership of all earthly possessions. These things shape my identity. It shapes who I am, and it makes me a child of God. It makes me a disciple of Christ. you got to like John MacArthur's quote here, and I don't know if a sermon here would be complete without quoting John MacArthur, so I had to throw him in there somewhere. Coming to Christ is not a superficial makeover. It's a supernatural takeover. Has Christ taken over your life? Has he taken over your life? Taken over your affections? Martin Luther describes these verses as the essence of the first commandment. To fear, to love, and trust God above all things. And when he penned, a mighty fortress is our God, he penned it this way in the fourth stanza, I believe. It says, let goods and kindred go. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You know, these, these verses are not intended to be some unachievable ideal, some idealistic view of what it means to be a believer. But they're meant to be a genuine characteristic of knowing and loving Christ. And so he does end with a verse that we did not read earlier with the 
illustration of salt. Verse 34 and 35, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He ends with this illustration of salt. And suffice it to say this morning that the believers for whom Jesus is more important than family or friends and even their own lives, believers who take up their crosses as living sacrifices so that he might be glorified, that he might be elevated, emptying ourselves of, our, emptying ourselves of, of ourselves that he might be honored and exonerated, exonerated rather, not exonerated, but elevated. And who forsake the claims of possessions, these believers are savory salt who bring joy to God and make a difference for his glory. So going back to his initial addressing this crowd, this great multitude, yes, if anyone comes to me, coming to Christ is both a gift and a command. It's a gift because it is by grace and he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And it's a command because we're called to count the cost and follow him accordingly. To give him preeminence over relationships, over our own life, and over everything we have. So yes, as we read these verses, don't, don't, let, let's, let's not put them aside as some form of exaggerated text that's unachievable. Let's take them as challenging our own hearts and mind to measure up to what God desires of me because he is worthy. And in his power of the Spirit, he enables me to be what he's called me to be for his honor and his glory. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, it is hard not to read these verses and not be challenged. I don't walk away necessarily lingering on the difficulty of the task, I walk away contemplating the greatness of the Savior worthy of the task. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for many times following like the crowd out of curiosity, self-servingly, selfishly, trying to find a way to accommodate you into our lives instead of making your life. Lord, help us to hear the the word that's been brought this morning in these verses, that, Lord, we cannot be your disciples unless we're willing to abandon all that we have, all that we are. May I decrease that you might increase. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.